chapter 6, verses 16 and 18. We're going to continue our series called God's Chosen Fast. The title of this sermon is When You Fast. But before we do so, I'd ask you to bow your heads in prayer with me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you, I hope, with a very, very warm and grateful heart, anticipating meeting with you as we study the Word of God together. And as I was praying this morning, I want you, Jesus, to be on display through me, to touch our lives, to draw us closer to you and to the Father and to the Spirit, sensitize our spirits that we may recognize your leading in our lives, that still, small, quiet voice, that, that sense of comfort and hope that we have because of your presence with us. Lord, I thank you that because you're with us, that even the darkest times of our lives are as light to us, that we always have hope, that we can say, why so downcast, O oh, my soul? Put your hope, put your trust in God. Once again, Father, I pray that your spirit would speak through me, that it would be as if Jesus Christ were present here this morning. And he were physically speaking to all of us and teaching us about himself and about fasting. Be glorified in the church and in Jesus Christ. Father, I ask this in the only name that I can come before you, the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord, my Savior, my King, and my friend. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. It says, And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I want to begin this morning with a, a story from a Ellen Vrana on a little blog she posted. She says this, I'm 11 years old, playing tennis with my dad. We played for hours a day. He'd hit me tennis balls, tennis ball after tennis ball, from this endless bucket. And I'd sometimes hit it well, and other times it'd go out or in the net. And he'd get mad, and he'd yell, Keep your arms up, roll your wrist, snap the ball. And I'd yell, I know, Dad. And he'd yell back, if you know, why do you keep doing it wrong? Because between knowing and doing, there are a million different things, including planting my feet correctly, turning my hips at the right time, reaching back far enough with my arm, swinging at the precise time, 
hitting the ball at the right place in my racket, swinging with my feet planted, following through with my arm and shoulder, pivoting my hips and feet, snapping my wrist appropriately, and following through with the right top spin. Top spin. One thing wrong, it goes out or in the net. Some of you may recall NUMI, the new United Motor Manufacturing Incorporated. It was an automobile manufacturing company in Fremont, California, that was jointly owned by General Motors and Toyota that opened in 1984. This joint venture seemed like a, uh, just a convenient partnership because GM, as we know, had the need to learn to build high-quality and profitable small cars, and Toyota had the need to start building cars in the United States to avoid import restrictions. Now, in spite of the history and reputation as a failed General Motors plant, when Numi reopened the factory in Fremont, California for production in 1984, 85% of the troublesome GM workforce was rehired. Now, some were sent to Japan to learn the Toyota production system, but almost right away, this is interesting, the Numi factory was producing cars at the same speed and with as few defects per 100 vehicles as those that were produced in Japan. Now, despite the early success at the Fremont, California plant, by 1998, roughly 15 years later, GM had still not been able to implement these manufacturing principles in the rest of the United States. The plant closed in 2010. Now, what did Toyota learn from all of this? Well, after just two years in a partnership with General Motors, Toyota invested in its first wholly owned plant in the United States. This new plant in Kentucky eventually became Toyota's largest plant outside of Japan. But what did General Motors learn? Now, GM saw the Toyota way of manufacturing cars, but here's the catch. But transferring this to GM's plants in Detroit proved difficult. GM launched a new line of cars. I don't know if you remember this, the Saturn vehicles in 1985. This was their attempt to capture this learning. But even a new nameplate could not change old corporate habits. And of course, the Saturn line was dissolved in 2010. General Motors knew what to do, but couldn't implement it. Knew what to do, but wouldn't do it. Now, whether you're an athlete or you're a corporation, knowing what to do and actually doing it are very different. Think about your own life. What are the things that we know we should do, but don't do? Exercise regularly, save for retirement, eat healthy, lose weight. But how many of us actually get around to doing it? We're all faced with this same dilemma in regards to fasting. We know we should be doing it, 
but we don't do it. And I want to address this issue this morning in what I call the when question. Because it doesn't say if you fast in our text. It says when you fast. And to really give us some insight into what was going on, I'm going to give you some historical context this morning. So by the time Jesus is speaking to these people here on earth, to the Jews, he started his ministry. Every element of his people, the Jews, from their personal lives into the system of religion, it was wholly inadequate to bring them into his kingdom. And rightfully so, because of his care for his people, he begins to challenge their confidence in this system of religion in order that they might respond to him as their savior. And in Matthew chapter 5, we have Jesus' first recorded sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells them that their theology is inadequate. The Beatitudes, you see it in chapter 5. You have heard it was said, but I say to you. So the theology was inadequate. He's correcting them there. And in chapter 6, he begins to tell them their religious practices are inadequate. And so he addresses three religious practices. They're giving, they're praying, and they're fasting. Now, in this sermon series, we have learned the significance of fasting in the Old Testament. The Old Testament commanded the people to fast only one day a year. And that was during the Passover feast, and it was a fast to remember their sins and to re- and, and practice confession, repentance, and penitence, and so on. And that was during the Passover feast. Other than that, all other fasts were completely voluntary. Now, despite only one command to fast one day a year in the Old Testament, regular fasting was a part of Jewish society. Now, by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, fasting had gone to a whole other level. Now, fasting was always meant, as I said earlier, kind of to be this true spontaneous, heartfelt, voluntary act of worship. But as you can see from our text in Matthew 6, it ended up being a hypocritical, self-righteous demonstration in front of men. And the Pharisees, in their fasting, put on this tremendous pretense. They made themselves look as miserable as they could, They would dishevel their hair. They would wear dirty clothes. They'd put ashes over their head. They'd smear the ashes over their faces. And they looked gloomy. And they paraded around and they let everybody know that they were fasting. Well, why? So that people would think that they were super spiritual. Now, to show you how far the Pharisees had taken fasting... This is from Luke 18, 9 through 12. You'll remember this introduction to this parable. It says this. He, meaning Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. See, the Pharisees were fasting not once a week, but twice a week. I mean, there is no biblical prescription or command for them to do that. But it goes beyond that. The the Talmud tells us that they fasted on the second day and the fifth day. That's what this Pharisee is referring to. So if you ask the Pharisees why the second day and the fifth day, they would say because it was the second day and the fifth day, which Moses went up from Mount Sinai, and in commemorating that, we fast on the second and the fifth day. That sounds pretty good, right? But as spiritual as that sounds, if you just take a little bit of a closer look in Jewish history, go to the city of Jerusalem, you'll find out that market day was the second and the fifth day. And those are the two days in the week when everybody from their countryside came to town. And if you ever were going to parade your self-righteousness in front of men, you'd want to do it where there was the largest crowd and it was the second and the fifth day. But it wasn't just the, the form. They would look gloomy and they would dishevel their hair and put on the clothes and the ashes and all of that. I mean, they, fat, they had the form and they followed it meticulously. But they actually believed that fasting was a way to deal with your sin. For example, the Talmud also says that he who blackens his face with ashes, ashes shall shine in glory to come. They really believed that there would be a special place of glory for one who went through a fasting and covered his face with ashes. So we can see they had completely externalized their religious practices, far from what God had intended to be true heartfelt worship. Now with that background information behind us, let's go back to Matthew 6, verse 16, and this is what we see. It is not if you fast, it says, but when you fast. Now let's be honest with each other. Let's look at the text in the context of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus uses the same phrase. When you. For example, he's going to address the three practices, giving, praying, and fasting. It's when you give, when you pray. When you fast. Now, most Christians pray with some regularity, and even fewer Christians give with some regularity. But most Christians do not fast at all. Now, one reason I believe is that there is no explicit command in the Bible that tells you to fast. There are plenty of explicit commands in the Bible to tell us to pray. And plenty of explicit commands in the Bible to tell us to give. But there's no command in the New Testament to fast. The result is that fasting is seen as optional in the church. However, I believe there is a much deeper reason why we do not fast. It's the very core of who we are. Now consider the three religious practices that Jesus is addressing. Giving, praying, and fasting. Of course, giving has to do with money. 
praying primarily deals with the, the spiritual or a relationship with God. But fasting primarily deals with food. If you think about it, people can survive in this world without money. The ground Washington, the homeless, are proof of that. People can survive in this world without a relationship with God. There are plenty of unbelievers in this world. But nobody can survive in this world without food. Consequently, food has this, I call it an inherent stronghold over our lives. And with that stronghold comes a very real possibility that food for us is almost like a god. It's a fascination beyond that which is normal. Now, food companies know this. And they advertise strategically and relentlessly bombard us with this advertising. Think of your children, for example. Did you know this, that American kids see, on average, three to five ads for fast food a day. And about 50% of all those ads directed at children are for food. And the result of this advertising, well, American children as a whole, really for the first time in recent history, are obese. It's due to a combination of factors. They're not as physically active. They're in front of the computer screen or TV screen or their phones. So there's a reduction in physical activity, but it's combined with an overconsumption of foods high in fat and sugar. And that goes directly back to advertising. Now, knowing this, Robert Parlbeg, he's a global food and agricultural policy scholar out of Harvard. He wrote this in his 2015 book called The United States of Excess, Gluttony and the Dark Side of American Exceptionalism. He talks about voluntary guidelines for the food industry on food advertising. Think about it. We don't see cigarettes advertised anymore. It's because in 1969 and 70, Nixon, I think, signed a law saying that you can't do that anymore. They found that it was bad for you, so they stopped it. Now we're seeing what food advertising, its effects on families, particularly children, and some are saying we need to stop this food advertising. Now, some guidelines have been implemented in the form of nutrition criteria and what should be advertised to children under the age of 12. Here's the thing, though. Since implementing those, these efforts have barely moved the needle in terms of shifting food advertising to children to generally healthy products. The point is this, is that food is powerful, and particularly junk food with all of its sugary content, so on. It's, it's highly addictive, but food has a stronghold in our lives. Let me show you again how par- powerful food can be. Just think about this. I've talked about American kids their struggle with obesity. According to the U.S. Surgeon General, obesity is now the fastest growing cause of disease and death in America. The crisis is not unique to the United States. According to the World Health Organization, 
the obesity epidemic is a major contributor to the global burden of chronic disease and disability. So apparently, even if you don't have the excesses that Americans have, people all over the world, rich and poor, are still eating too much. That's the power of food. Now watch this. Because of food, we become engaged in things that we shouldn't be involved in. I want to give you a few biblical examples. And when I researched this and found this out, it's kind of one of those eye-opening experiences where you say, I really never saw this in the text, but it is there everywhere. I want to give you some biblical examples that demonstrate the power of food and how it can lead to unhealthy behavior. Start at the beginning. When Satan wanted to tempt Eve and cause the whole human race to fall, what did he tempt her with? Genesis 3, 6, when the, women, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. When Noah... God wiped out the entire world. A start over, a redo. The very first story that we read of is the very first sin post-flood. It involves food. Noah fell into the sin of voyeurism. And it was induced by what? Well, it says this in Genesis 9, 20 and 21. Now Noah became to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So eating and drinking have always been a potential disaster. Esau, he received the right of primogenitor, the blessing of being the firstborn and all that came with it. He sold his birthright for what? A single meal. Genesis 25, 30 and 33, and Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. How about the people of Israel? This is Numbers 11, 4 through 5. Now the rabble, this is in the wilderness, now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember that fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Think about this, folks. Here are God's people. They've been delivered out of Egypt in a series of incredible miracles, the ten plagues and so on. Across the Red Sea, pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. They've been given the law of God. They're marching to the promised land. What are they thinking about? What they'd like to eat. Do you know that the lust for food even found its way into the sanctuary of God and corrupted the house of the high priest himself? This is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 29. This is God speaking. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons, these are the sons of Eli the priest, Above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering, 
of my people Israel. When anyone brought an offering, part of it was consumed in the altar, and part of it went to support the priests. Samuel's sons, who were priests, made sure they took the choice cuts and left the rest for God. The desire for the gratification of an appetite had come to the place where it corrupted the worship of the very priest within the sanctuary of God. How about this verse, Jeremiah 5, 7? God speaking, how can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. When somebody gives in to the passions of their appetite for food, we see a multiplying effect in the decline of all other elements of the spiritual life. People got what they wanted. They began to live to saturate their desire for food. The result was they couldn't restrain themselves from other lusts. Now the same thing happened again to Jeshurun, which is a, a poetic name for the people of Israel, in Deuteronomy 32, 15. But Jeshurun, or Israel, grew fat and kicked. He grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God and made him, who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. It's not just the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11, 17-21, the love feasts in the church at Corinth. Paul writes this, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, meaning worship, it's not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, that there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, watch this, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So gluttony, favoritism, and drunkenness accompany the love feasts in Corinth. Love feasts would be the equivalent of like a, a church potluck. So, why don't we fast? Number one, there's no explicit command in the Bible that tells us we should fast. Therefore, we can, don't feel guilty when we don't fast because it's seen as optional. Number two, folks, fasting isn't easy. It's, it's hard. And we need food to survive. Therefore, we're engaged, and I don't know if we realize this, in an unrelenting battle between God and food. We're not to allow food to have a stronghold in our life. To help us battle with that, God has given us the gift of fasting. God is to be our ruler. God is to be our Lord. Paul reminds us, again, he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Richard J. Foster wrote this, 
Fasting reveals the things that control us. We cover up what is inside us with food and other good things. But we must be able to bring them to an easy place where it does not control us. It is a blessed, or it is a blessed release to have these things out in the open so that they can be defeated and we can live with a single eye towards God. So that's the when you fast question I wanted to address. Let's talk about the heart. Matthew 6, 16, again, says this, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. Like their ancestors before them in Isaiah 58, the last two weeks of sermons, the Pharisees practiced fasting with the wrong motive. Their ancestors fasted while oppressing the weak and the poor. And picking up on their hypocrisy, the Pharisees fasted for spiritual pride. Their fastings were nothing more than another hypocritical religious practice. I want to close with Zechariah chapter 7, verses 4 through 10 this morning. It says this, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities around her, and the south and the lowland were inhabited. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And our Lord begins with the question, Was it for me that you fasted? I mean, with that question, there is no beating around the bush. He goes right to the heart of the matter. All those years when you fasted, he says, did you think those were pleasing fasts? Do you think those were fasts I accepted any more than when you ate and drank? No, the people should have heard the words the Lord spoke to them by the prophets and thus lived obedient, pleasing lives to God. And God's point is this, and perhaps this is the point of this sermon. Behind every acceptable fast to the Lord, there is always a righteous life. Behind every acceptable fast to the Lord, there is always a righteous life. And what does righteousness look like? Well, Zechariah tells us, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. See, Jesus had the same message just in different words. Again, behind every fast, there should be a righteous life. Jesus said this, but when you fast... Matthew 6, 17 and 18, but when you fast, 
anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a righteous life behind every acceptable fast to God. So when your heart is right, the natural overflow is a life of obedience to God with the right heart, with the right heart, then you'll have a real fast that is acceptable to God. So we've been going through fasts now for I think roughly about a month now. In fact, you study some fasts. We've gone over in Bible studies. Last week, I asked you to pray about fasting. This week, I'm going to ask you to fast this week. Pray about it as you feel led. Maybe the God will tell you to fast part of a day or a full day or a couple days, whatever it is. Let's put into practice fasting. We want to be a people that don't just hear the Word of God, but do the Word of God. We know what to do, we just don't do it. And let's do it with the right heart motive. Behind every fast, there is a righteous life. Let's pray. Father, it is Mother's Day, and we are grateful for the mothers in our lives and what a blessing they are. And I want to thank you for your words to us this morning. I want to thank you that, again, it all goes back to the heart. <laughs> but just what a blessing it is to have your words and how you can guide us. And we want to be people that have a righteous life behind our fast. Lord, speak to those of us that you will have fast this week. May we do it with the right motive, with the right life behind it, that it may just not be acceptable to you, but pleasing to you. And may we allow you to do a work in and through us as we fast. Jesus, thank you for your words of instruction. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to guide us. Thank you for your presence with us at all times. And all God's people said, amen. Have a blessed Mother's Day. God bless you.